in our sermon series. If you remember, uh, we've been going slowly through chapter 11. The first 10 chapters of Hebrews presents to us the glorious object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, and shows how He is the priest that God sent into the world, the very, His very own Son, to save His people from their sins. And then at the end of chapter 10, we're strongly exhorted to, to trust in Him. And then in chapter 11, we see models, examples of those who did trust in Him and how faith works and what it does. And I thought this would be a really helpful thing for us to, to spend some time on. And so I did slow down significantly when we got to this chapter. We're just uh, really creeping along, but we're really getting a nice survey of some of the accounts in the Old Testament that are mentioned here in Hebrews that we're not maybe so familiar with. Uh, the people that first received this epistle were Jews, and they were quite familiar with all of these stories. You just had to mention it, and they knew the whole thing and had thought about it much. But it's not the case with us, and I hope that and, and pray that you'll be stimulated by even going through this to read your Bibles, to read the Old Testament, to read these narratives and become familiar with them, and to look to them to strengthen your faith. Don't look at them as something that just happened a long time ago. That, well, what does that have to do with me? It has everything to do with you. And Hebrews shows us that very, very plainly. These things were written for us. They're written to help us who have faith in the Lord today. Now, the last sermon I preached from Hebrews 11 before we took a break from Hebrews was from Hebrews 11.29. It may be contrasted with the example that we're looking at today in Hebrews 11.30. The background of these verses is the same. God was bringing the nation that He had chosen for salvation to be His people. He was bringing them out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, to a land of their own that they might be governed by Him there. They might be a nation in all the world that was set apart and governed by God following His precepts. God had called them and promised to preserve them that they might be that nation from which Christ, the Savior of the world, would be born. His plan was to give them ordinances of worship with a temple, which of course He did, a priesthood, sacrifices, and holy days so that they could have a model of forgiveness and have forgiveness as it would be brought forth by Christ when He came as a priest. That they could be a people restored to the living God who lived for God before the world that has been estranged by sin. These ordinances of worship would set forth by rituals how Christ, the ultimate priest, would offer the ultimate sacrifice that would save them and all the people that would come after them from sin and all the people, all of them and all the people that would come after them. God was teaching them and providing lessons through them for the nations who would come after Christ came to trust in Him and to make them His own people. So in Hebrews eleven twenty nine, we're taught that they had faith to be delivered from bondage that they might serve God in His kingdom. I entitled the sermon, Faith That Sets You Free. 
I spoke about how our sin can make us feel quite helpless. I don't know if you remember that. It was a few weeks ago. And how we have to look to the Lord in faith, believing that He can deliver us. We feel hemmed in. We're closed in. We can't get out to be free to to live for God and to serve God. And we, we can have that experience like they did in Egypt. And God is the one who can open the Red Sea and destroy the Egyptians in it, bring, bring His people out and destroy them. And now you see, what we see coming out that way from being hemmed in and in bondage. In Hebrews 11, we're taught how they had faith now to enter into the blessing that God had given them. To come and be that nation that was His people and that supplanted all of the uh, Canaanites in the land that, that God had given them. The things that stood in their way could not prevent God and them, through God, from advancing to where He had called them to advance and bringing about the kingdom that He had told them in that, in that uh, nation, in that land. We're going to say a lot more about that. But let me go ahead and read to you this from God's holy word. It's just a couple of verses here. I'm going to read the, the, these two verses, the one last time about coming out from bondage and the one about advancing and going in to the kingdom that God has given us. So this is the word of God. It's from Hebrews eleven twenty nine through 30. And remember that God's word is given to us that we might believe. It's given to strengthen our faith that we might be able to serve God faithfully. So Hebrews eleven twenty nine through 30. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. And there we end the reading of God's holy word. May he be praised and honored for giving us clear instruction. So to summarize, these verses teach us that we must trust God to deliver us from bondage to sin, Satan, this rebellious world, death, all of these things to serve God. Verse 29 from the last time. Verse 30, today's verse, teaches us that by faith we are able to come all, overcome all opposition that stands in the way of establishing God's righteous kingdom in the earth. Okay, that, that's the things that we learn here. May the Lord develop our faith as those who are called today to have our hand in establishing His righteous kingdom in the world despite the opposition that we face today. Okay, so let's, let's look at the walls of Jericho. I want to begin by showing you that the walls of Jericho represent for us what stands in the way of the advancement of God's kingdom. You can think about that individually. What stands in the way of God's kingdom advancing in your life? What stands in the way of the church is God's people. That's really where we're focusing more, the corporate sense. But what stands in the way... First, let me tell you about the literal walls of Jericho. I'm going to have a bit to say about this. Almost 3,500 years ago, God, having brought His people Israel out of slavery in Egypt, commanded them to establish a righteous kingdom for Him in the land of Canaan. 
They were to be a nation, as I mentioned to you in the introduction, a nation among the nations that was reconciled to God. He would preserve them and bring forth Christ, the Savior of the world, by them into the world. And they were to keep the ordinances that He gave them at that time to obey Him and trust Him. God would be their king in this land. And the ceremonial law of its sacrifices would show by rituals how God forgives sins by the sacrifice and death of a substitute. Ultimately, Christ on the cross. They were to live in the world as God's people. But in order to establish this righteous kingdom, where they would live under God, they had to first clear the land of its current inhabitants, the Canaanites. Many people, understandably in one sense, are offended when they hear what God commanded Israel to do to remove the Canaanites from the land. They were to execute them all, men, women, and children. Many Christians struggle with this and are embarrassed by it. But we ought not to be embarrassed by this. God ordered this, as He says, to punish these nations for the sin that God had allowed to grow up in them to maturity for 400 years. The sin was already strong, and God, in a sense, released them, not completely. If He'd done that, they would have been worse than they were. But remove restraint and let that sin grow up for 400 years. He always restrains sin, but He did not restrain it so much in these nations. He left them more freely to go their own way. Over the years, from the time of Noah... When, I remind you, the world started over, okay, as trusting God for salvation. Everybody knew the gospel at that time. They knew the promises of God. These nations had gradually turned to idols and to immorality and violence. Their idols were demons who led them in their rebellion against God. They even offered their own children to these idol demons as sacrifices. If God had not specially called Israel and diligently restrained them, as He did not restrain the Canaanites, they would have been just like these nations. God said so. He said plainly, they, you are no different. And that's true of us. You are no different. It's only because I came to you and restrained you and left them freely to go more their own way. Again, not entirely even then. He restrained sin in everyone, but didn't restrain it so much. The favor he showed to the Israelites was completely undeserved. It was all of grace. God says plainly that he showed mercy to them simply because he showed mercy. There was not a reason in them. He said, I can show mercy to whom I will, and whom I will, I can harden. He could have justly treated them the same way that he treated the Canaanites, and there would have been no injustice done. They deserved to be wiped out just like the Canaanites. That's what people do not accept when they're offended by these things. If you don't accept that foundation that we all deserve to be wiped, utterly wiped out, then you're going to have problems with what happened at Canaan. 
you're going to have problems. You're going to say, well, it's not right. It's not fair. It's not just. But once we see that God has shown incredible, undeserved kindness and mercy to His people, we can no longer quarrel that after years of patience with these Canaanites, He finally gave sentence that they were to be utterly wiped out. The punishment that they fully deserved. A judge who patiently waits and finally sentences the offenders to what they actually deserved all along has done no wrong. And you see, if we believe what the Bible says, then it's righteous and just. If we take issue with that, then we'll have problems. Now that was a deliberate digression. But let's come back to our main point here. The Lord called the nation that He had chosen to show mercy to wipe out all the Canaanites on account of their wickedness in that land and to themselves live in that land as His people, trusting Him, obeying His commandments, serving Him, worshiping Him, receiving His forgiveness that was promised to them, and conquering, but conquering those nations was not an easy thing for them to do. They did not have the power in themselves to conquer all of those Canaanites and to annihilate them. The walls of Jericho were the first great barrier that they encountered at the frontier of the land, at the gateway as it was, as they were coming in, they encountered this city with its mighty fortress walls designed to resist invasion. It was so formidable that it was a major factor that led the ten of the twelve men who went to spy out the land 40 years before Joshua, or Joshua was among them, but 40 years before the time we're reading about in uh, Joshua 5, um, that uh, they declared that those ten spies saw those walls, and that was one of the things that made them say, there's no way we can do this. And they discouraged the people. And the people backed out of the whole, uh, the, the whole event, the whole calling of God, and had to wander in, the wilderness for, wander in the wilderness for 40 years. People hearing the bad report were sentenced by the Lord to wander in the wilderness until another generation took their place. And you know what? The, the truth is that those spies were in one sense right. Because it was impossible for Israel, without military training, without armor or machinery, to conquer apart from the Lord's divine intervention. The Lord intended it to be like this. You remember when He called Gideon? It was a similar thing. He said, you've got too many people. You'll think you did it yourself. And He reduced them. He said, oh, it's still too many. And he reduced them again and brought them down, 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 so that it would be evident that it was by his hand that the victory was accomplished. Now, let's look at the church. The church has a much greater task, a God-given task, with more formidable walls, more formidable opposition standing in our way today. The Lord Jesus Christ has commanded us to make disciples of all nations. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things, not just some things, all things that he has commanded. Their opposition to God must be not just wiped out and annihilated, but it must be transformed into glad submission. That's the calling that we have. How in the world could we ever do such a thing to bring the whole world under Christ? Their opposition to God transformed to submission to God. Our Lord Jesus has called us, Acts 26, 18, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We're called to do nothing less than 2 Corinthians 10.5, cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ is the end game. As J. Gresham Machen said, The Christian cannot be satisfied so long as any human activity is either opposed to Christianity or out of connection with Christianity. Christianity must pervade not merely all nations, but also all of human thought. Very striking words for us to ponder. The walls of opposition are mighty indeed. How can we do that? How can we possibly do such a thing? The human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Sin and rebellion against God are so deeply rooted in the human heart that it causes it to put every kind of resistance it can marshal against yielding to God as God. It will avoid and ignore God and His call in every way that it can. It will inflame itself with unwarranted bitterness based on unjust accusations against God. It will make itself stupid and blind in order to say none of these things can be true. It will manufacture and serve false and twisted versions of God, idols to avoid serving the true God, so that there is something that is not God, that is much preferred to the true God that is worshipped. That's why the whole world, why are there so many religions? The whole world turned to all kinds of idolatry because the true God is offensive to the sinful human heart. It will, that sinful heart will even deny that there is a God, which is honestly absolute madness. It tries to deny this by gathering others to join in to, to declare that, that God is not. It will give its soul over to covetousness, to pride, to sexual immorality, to violence, even to things like self-made moralism. Anything to distract and get away from the knowledge that it must submit to the true God. The human heart will band together with others to put up arguments and defenses against the true God. It will crucify the very one that was sent to save it from its sins. It's exactly what happened when Jesus came. The human heart is so desperately wicked that rather than rejoice that the Savior of the world had come, the very people that He was sent to marshaled together 
to eliminate him from the earth if they could have. They did, of course, in one sense, only to have him rise again and declare that, that he would have dominion over the whole earth. It will do, the heart will do anything but repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything. It will do anything but that, that it might be reconciled to God. These are the walls of Jericho that the church faces in advancing God's kingdom today. Okay, so the walls of Jericho in the Old Testament are a model of these much greater walls of opposition that we face today. Jesus called these walls the gates of Hades. They are indeed formidable. People often look at the gates of Hades backwards. They look at them as walls that are keeping us in. They are walls that are keeping the advancing church out. The resistance that says, you cannot come here. Christ and His kingdom cannot come here. You cannot come to my heart. You cannot come to my city. You cannot come to my nation. There are those walls of opposition, you see, that stand. And Jesus says, they cannot stand. They cannot remain standing before me and my advancing church. He declared confidently in, in Matthew 16 that, that this was so. As we saw in Revelation last week, he opens the door to his gospel and no one can shut it. You want a powerful illustration of this? In the first century, what happened in the first century? First of all, you had the opposition of that very nation that God appointed to bring His salvation into the world, the Jews. They opposed Christ and they crucified Him. And these Hebrews that are written to here are the Jews that did believe. Many of them did believe. And of course, the Apostle Paul and Peter and John and all those people are the ones that, that did believe. But they were just a small company. And the Jews were trying to wipe them out, the unbelieving Jews, and to destroy them. There were the walls of opposition. That was the walls that were within. It's what Israel had when they went, tried to go to the land the first time, and the spies said, oh no, God's brought us out here to destroy us. This isn't the way to go. And they discouraged the people, and they were in the wilderness for 40 years. Okay, that was the opposition from within. Then you come to the Roman Empire. What did the Roman Empire think of the church? They knew that it was going to displace them and their authority. And they were very pleased with their own authority. They were very pleased with their own government. And this was something that was threatening them to overthrow them with another dominion, another ruler. And that really, of course, disturbed them. So they were smart enough to recognize that that's where this thing was going. And so what did they do? They enlisted people to persecute the Christians. They burned them. They, they arrested their leaders and took them off to, to feed them to the lions or to burn them at the stake. And this went on for a long time. And they tried to put up that opposition against the church. What happened? The church conquered. The Roman Empire yielded to Jesus Christ. Christ took dominion because the gates of Hades cannot prevail against his church. It's such a time when, when, but then what happens with God's people? When they become very strong, they often become proud. And among them are those who do not really believe. 
And as time goes by, their unbelief begins to permeate. And they begin to come away from God. They become more and more unfaithful. And they lose their power to advance. And God brings them under a time of very sluggish advancement. And He raises up His people somewhere else and somewhere else. And this is how it's been going all through the world. But you see, it's not because the world is so strong that the kingdom is weak. It's because the church is unfaithful. And when that faithfulness is restored, the church advances again. It's only by faith that we bring down the walls of Jericho today and bring the world to God through Christ. And now I want you to see that the method the Lord has appointed for bringing down the walls of Jericho also requires faith. Okay, so it requires faith to believe that the walls will be brought down, that they cannot stand. It also requires faith to use the method or the means that God has appointed to the church to bring those walls down. So let's begin with the model that's given to us of faith, the faith that was required for bringing down the literal walls of Jericho in Joshua's day. It would have been one thing if the Lord had given them all kinds of armor and military machinery and said, you know, here's battering rams that you can make and here's amazing strategy that you can utilize to, to compass this city and to, to bring it down. But instead, He gave them means or, or a method for bringing down those mighty walls that could never in themselves succeed. Never apart from divine intervention. They were ridiculous means as far as it went. We, we read about the means that God appointed. It must, it must have made the men of Jericho laugh if they weren't too terrified. They were terrified because they knew what happened in Egypt to the Egyptians. But as they watched them, what are these guys doing? Maybe they taunted them you know, from the walls. So what are you guys doing out there? Do you not know what to do? You know, uh, Joshua 6, 3 through 5 is where we, uh, I'll just read that part that we read earlier. What did God tell them to do? What was the method? To bring down these huge walls, these fortress walls of a whole city. You shall march around the city. This is Joshua 6.3. All you men of war, you shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. How is this supposed to work? Only by God's mighty hand. The language employed tells us that in addition to the miracle of the walls falling, that they fell flat. The language is very clear here in the Hebrew. It's translated, well, it fell, they fell flat. Some of the Jews actually understood the language to mean that the ground swallowed up the walls so that it was just like there was no wall there. In any case, there was no rubble there. They fell flat. No rubble that would impede them, I mean, from advancing as an army in every place. They were all around the city. And they could just like walk right in anywhere except for the one place the wall stood where Rahab's house was. That was the only place 
that, that stood. They can march right into the city and take it. Israel's faith is exhibited how in this instance? In using the means that God gave them. Using this method just because God gave it to them. They had learned enough now to know that they needed to trust God. They did not dig a trench. They did not build battering rams. They simply marched around the city behind the priests and then blew the trumpets and then shouted. They fully trusted God and He brought the walls down. Now, we talked about our task. An even greater more impossible task. Today, faith is required for the means that God, to use the means that God has appointed for advancing the kingdom of Christ. It was needed for the Hebrews to whom Hebrews is written, and it is needed for us today. What are some of the means? What are the means that He has appointed? Preaching the gospel. Going into all the world and preach the gospel. What Paul calls the foolishness of preaching. Like, what? How is a man speaking to people supposed to change the rebellious, sinful heart? Paul went around like Jesus did from synagogue to synagogue, the churches of the Jews and the places all around Asia Minor and whatnot, and preached the gospel. He also proclaimed the gospel to people he met when he was opposed and arrested, even before kings and rulers and judges. He called all men everywhere to repent what he did. He said, repent and believe this gospel. In addition to this, baptism was appointed by God. Those who believed were to receive it with their children to show the cleansing of sin in a way that could be uh, portrayed by the washing of water. To look to Jesus who was crucified and who baptizes with the Holy Spirit to, to cleanse our hearts and also by his blood having been crucified to cleanse us from our guilt signified by the water. They, as Christ commanded, they were, to, they were added to the church that they might observe all that Christ had commanded. That was another thing he appointed, was the church. All those who believed were gathered into the assembly, the great assembly, the church, to praise God. Here the ordinances of worship were to be done, giving thanks to His name for salvation. Here prayers were to be offered up for the advance of the kingdom. Here in the church, praises were to be given to God. Here the gospel was to be declared. Here the Lord's Supper was to be served. Here believers were to be cared for spiritually and physically. Here they were to be accountable and disciplined if they go astray. Here ministers and elders were to be raised up and trained to shepherd and teach the people. And from here, they were to be sent out into the world to spread the gospel to other places. But how could this change the rebellious heart of man and bring him to God through faith in Jesus Christ? How could that possibly work? At least there is a connection in this case. Okay? With the walls of Jericho and marching around the city, there's not even a connection between the means. Here, the means do have a connection. There is a warning of everyone and a preaching of the way of salvation by faith in the Savior, the Son of God crucified for sinners. We warn them of the dreadful consequences of refusal and the wonderful rewards of acceptance. The way of salvation by Christ dying is set forth as a way for justice 
the justice of God to be satisfied, the changed lives of believers who have been transformed by the gospel exhibit the power of God in their lives in the church, demonstrate the power of the gospel. There's a connection, indeed, between the means and the goal of advancing the kingdom. But how could these means possibly take a rebellious sinner and change them to come into the kingdom of God? They cannot. They cannot do that in themselves. They cannot save anyone apart from God's intervention. Paul frequently refers to this. For example, in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine in our heart, I mean, to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, in clay pots. Like we're, we're clay that talks. That's what we are. Clay that preaches. And we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So a man made of the dust of the ground speaks and it transforms lives. What an incredible thing. This is not what man does. This is what God does. That God should use clay pots to bring sinners into his glorious kingdom. Such a method could not succeed without his mighty hand of power. It requires faith in God to use this means. Just like it required faith in Israel to use the means that he gave them to bring down the walls of Jericho. Now the question for you, for us, do we have faith? If we do, we will do what God says. We will stick to the simple preaching of the word, sacraments, prayer, godly living, faithfulness, and public ordinances. We will make these a priority, and we will endeavor to do them just as God has appointed, not adding or taking away. We will look to Him to give the increase, to break down the walls of our Jericho before us, that His kingdom may conquer and subdue. The world sometimes recognizes the power of the gospel more than we do today in our unbelief and weakness. What do I mean by that? For too long, modern Christians have been telling the world that we just want to live at peace with them in the world. But they know better. They know that God and His kingdom are actually a threat to them. Not a threat in that carnal sense of that we're going to raise up war machinery against them like God appointed in the Old Testament for wiping out the Canaanites. They know that the Lord calls for nothing less than their death to self. That they might turn to God for a new life in Christ crucified. Him as the Lord of all. We are taking over. And they know that. Because Christ our King is taking over. And He will have dominion over the whole world. And they had better repent and come to God by Him or they will be miserably destroyed and brought to the pit of hell. And that is a message that they do not want to hear. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, either willingly or unwillingly. Everyone will acknowledge the dominion of our Savior. Like the demons that accounted Jesus, they say, do not do this before the time. I will wait till the day of judgment for that. Don't do this. Don't cause me to uh, be brought down before the time. But unlike the demons, 
they could repent and enter the kingdom if only their hearts were not so desperately rebellious that they fiercely refuse God's mercy and do all they can to silence Christians proclaiming the truth. They are glad for our softened message that we just want to get along, but it is our unfaithfulness and unbelief that hinders the gospel. Now, you understand what I'm saying? Not that we don't try to be gracious and get along with people, but the message that we declare is not that we'll just both do our own thing and everything will be fine. The message is that Jesus Christ is Lord, and unless you bow to Him, you will be destroyed. If you come to Him, you will be blessed. And that is the message that we must proclaim. It is not a message of peace unless there is repentance. If we do not have faith that our Lord will use us in the means that He has appointed to build His church, we will despair of the means that He has appointed. We will not, as it were, march around the walls again and again, even though nothing seems to be happening from it. They went around the first day, nothing happened. The second day, nothing happened. The third day, nothing happened. They went around and round and round. We will stop our prayers. We will stop our preaching of the gospel, concluding that it does not work. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 4 and 5, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul didn't resort to some methodology that was popular in his day for speaking in order to win people to the kingdom, but he proclaimed the simple truth of God and left it in God's hands that the power might be seen from God. Since COVID, I have seen many Christians become slack about attending church. They see no problem with doing church online, as they say. They see no problem with living in a place where there's no solid church. They do not diligently observe the ordinances that God has appointed for His people. What else might we do if our faith becomes weak? We might embellish the simple means that He has given us. I sort of mentioned that already. Add a bit of drama, a bit of entertainment in place of preaching. We'll bring in some celebrities and have them come and speak. We will focus on social programs or political reforms instead of the means of grace. Not that those things are wrong in themselves, but they are no substitutes for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not to be relied on as a way to bring in God's kingdom. They are not. Perhaps worst of all, we will compromise the truth in an effort to make the gospel more palliative and more attractive to unbelievers. We will tone down our doctrine not talk about hell or about sin. Has that ever been done? It's been widely done in our land. It's been mostly done in churches. Tone down the doctrine of hell and sin. We won't call people out for sex outside of marriage or declare that homosexuality is an abomination to God. We will do all that we have done and act like Jesus and His church is no threat to them and their way of life, when in fact He has appointed them to utter destruction worse than the destruction at Canaan if they do not repent and believe. Where did we ever get the idea anyway that our message should be attractive to unbelievers? It's only attractive to unbelievers if they repent. If it's attractive to them as unbelievers, 
It means we've modified it so it's a different message. If unbelievers like the message as unbelievers, then we have perverted the message. Now, if that message calls them to change and they like it because they see that they need to repent and, and, and come to Christ, then welcome to whatever unbeliever, whatever they may have done. But we don't want to, do you understand what I'm saying? We don't want to change and modify the gospel so that people say, okay, that, yeah, I like that better. I'll come to that. I won't come to the real gospel, but this thing that's modified a little bit, it's tweaked a little bit, yeah, that, that's acceptable to me. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. We don't want unbelievers to be attracted to something that's false. We want them to be attracted only to what is true. And you see, it doesn't attract them unless God, by His mighty Spirit, changes them. That's where we have to trust God. It's not by our clever interventions and our clever, clever modifications that these things are done. We must remember that it is the Lord who does the saving. We must patiently march around the city for seven days and do it seven times on the seventh day until He brings down the walls. What I mean is, we must continue to patiently use the means that He has appointed. If we are to go around and around for centuries, we must do it with patience until He establishes the kingdom of Christ that He has promised. The seven days and the seven priests and the seven rounds on the seventh day remind us that the advancing of the kingdom is His work. Why? Why are there all those sevens? Well, the sevens point <clears throat> to the creation, right? God created the world. He made the world in six days and rested on the seventh day. God made the world and then He did what? Rested on the seventh day and celebrated the work that He has done on that day as His work. It was His rest, you see. He finished the work. So He rested from His work because it was all done, and then He gave it to His people, the, the creation that He had made, and they entered into His rest to live for Him in what He had fully created for them to enjoy. It was, uh, they were to enter in it, with joy and blessing, he set apart that seventh day that they would come and remember that this is what God did. He's the one that made the world. Hebrews 3 and 4, chapter 3 and 4, referred to the entry into Canaan as also entering into God's rest. When the people came to be his people and live in that land, it was the work of God. It wasn't their work. God was the one that was bringing them out to bring them in and give them rest, to establish them a new creation, a nation created for Him, a people that were there who had been in darkness like the other nations that would now serve Him. Driving out the Canaanites, those who entered, entered into God's rest. Hebrews 3 and 4 remind us that there is a rest that remains for the people of God today. The rest that comes through the gospel and that will be, it was completed in the finished work of Christ and it has another completion when Christ comes back and sentences all, sends all of his enemies to the pit and establishes his kingdom in this world where it will be all that we said it would be. Where there will not be any thought that is contrary to his reign and his dominion. By the gospel, we bring people into this rest when the gospel conquers them. They are brought into God's rest, God's work by God's means. 
This is the rest that we celebrate every seventh day as the Christian Sabbath. It's a testimony to the world that salvation is God's work. We enter into the work that He accomplished for us in Christ, making a new creation in Christ. If you do not repent and believe, you will not enter His rest. You will be cast into the pit with Satan and all who are in league with Him. Enter while you may. Please stand and let's call on the name of the Lord. Our gracious Lord God, we come to you with thanksgiving and praise. For you are the Lord of all. And Father, from the beginning of the world, mankind rebelled against you. And we have seen, Lord, the, the chaos and the trouble that it brings. We see, O oh Lord, how that when you take off restraint, that we go into great corruption. And we thank you, Lord, that you continue to restrain the world and you do not let us go all the way. We thank you, Lord, for how even in the ancient world that you, you did release man to go very far into his sin and then you cleansed the world by the great flood that you sent in Noah's day, promising that you would bring about the kingdom that you had promised, that you would establish your people of praise in the earth. And we thank you that the world, in a sense, started over, entering into your rest after the flood. But Father, we see how quickly the sin of man went into rebellion. We see how much we needed a Savior, a Redeemer, one that would come to provide atonement and to lead us in righteousness. And we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ came in the fullness of time and that he was brought forth by the nation that you set apart and preserved to be your people in the world. And we thank you that you, by them, that you conquered all of Canaan and gave them the land. It took a while for them to do that. And their, their unfaithfulness hindered them many times from accomplishing, even the 40 years initially. And then after they were there, they didn't finish the job. And they continually had troubles and were sometimes even brought into bondage to their own enemies by your hand in order to chasten them. But we see that in the fullness of time, Christ came forth. And we see how powerfully the gospel went forth when the whole Roman Empire wanted to stop it. And emperors went on campaigns to completely wipe it out. And we know that philosophers have done the same thing. They have even predicted the demise of Christianity in their own day. And again and again, they have not succeeded. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We see rather that the church continues to advance in the world. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as this is a very weak time because of our unfaithfulness, we pray that you would have mercy on us. O oh Lord, that you would forgive us and that you would give us renewed faith and zeal that we might go forward in your name for your kingdom, for your glory, that Christ might have dominion. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would proclaim Him as the Lord of all. You have exalted Him to be Lord in Christ. All nations have been given into His hand. Not one nation will be able to oppose Him in the end. We praise You, O oh Lord, that You will gather at the last day all of those people who have ever lived on the earth. You will deliver them from death. All of those who have believed in You and trusted You and sought this salvation from Your hand, they will be brought into that final eternal rest that you have promised to your people. Oh Lord, it will be a glorious Sabbath that we will celebrate and rejoice in what you have done. What beautiful things we will be able to behold in your kingdom and glory.
Oh, Father, that we would see you and that we would know you. Oh, Father, bring about your kingdom, Lord. Bring it about. Hasten it, we pray. And help us, Lord, to do what we may, what we can, Lord. We, we think of the woman that, that Tom anointed Jesus with her tears and her oil. And Jesus said she has done what she could. We pray, Lord, that we might do what we can in the advance of your kingdom. We thank you that you're so gracious in receiving even the little that we do and counting it as much. Father, please help us, though, for you are worthy of far more than what we have given you. We pray that you would forgive us, O Lord, for our slackness and for our unbelief, and that we would go forward in your name with, with power and confidence. For you are the mighty Lord, and you will accomplish all that you have spoken. Not one of your promises will fail, just as it never, they, your promises have never failed. We praise you and we thank you, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's now. now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.